Hello, everybody, and welcome to What With The Smart Play TV, the UK's premier RPG podcast. If you listened last week, you'll hear a message from Baz. He's going through some tough times, but uh, a lot of you have written in, either on Patreon or Twitter or other places, to let us know that he's got your support and so have I. So that's great to hear. Thanks very much. And remember, kids, if you've got mental health problems, reach out to friends, family, and other people and get some help. With that said, don't worry. We've got other people. It's not just me. For starters, we've got a good friend of the show, uh, Stug Baz, for this week, is Matt Hart from Steamforge Games. How's it going, Matt? Uh, very good. I've got some uh, comfy slippers to fill, I think. Yeah, very much so, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, well, we were just having our kind of our, our pre-press-the-record button chatter, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I still feel the Englishness in me when you say, hey, how's it going? I've got to talk to, talk to you about the weather. It's too hot. Well, yeah. I, I don't mind the heat, although because we're recording, I have to shut all the windows and turn all my fans off, so it will definitely get too hot. But it's going to build up. Yes, yeah, and I did hear. Um, I did hear the other day, actually, quite worryingly, that when it's hot, you shouldn't drink tea because tea is a diuretic and it helps uh, uh, make you feel more thirsty, and that's, that's not good. Probably a lie created by the Americans. I mean, I kind of want to believe it's a lie. Well, talking of Americans, we have a special guest, a returning visitor, another good friend of the show. Mr. Raphael Chandler, how's it going, Raphael? Fantastic, thank you. And just to be absolutely clear, we do actually encourage you to drink tea. You just got to put a ton of sugar and a bunch of ice cubes. I'll <laughs> right. get the lettuce page started for this week. That's good to know. Excellent. So uh, Raphael, as some people might remember, or if you're here for the first time, has done a ton of stuff, games like Dread and Pandemonium, some stuff for OSR. He's written novels. He's been involved in computer games and all kinds of things. Uh, and probably one of the things most recently is uh, he, with his lovely wife, Heather, have created an escape room, which has been going gangbusters. So in this horrible time we've had with pandemics and all sorts, Raphael, can you tell us how's, how escape room's doing? Are you still doing well over there? Yeah, we actually had a pretty good launch about three years ago. We opened with two rooms. One was about the 1980s. One was about superheroes. A few months later, I opened a third room and then uh, finally constructed and built a fourth room. And about uh, 30 minutes after that, COVID hit. So I had to shut the building down and close it. <laughs> it was a rough year. Actually, I went back to video games. I, I wound up working on some video game in the studio in Hong Kong. And my wife started working with a First Nations tribe. I believe it is correctly identified as the Mississippi Band of the Choctaw Nation. They were working on a game where they were attempting to preserve their, their culture and their heritage through video games, which I think is brilliant and a fascinating new frontier. So we did that for about a, a year, most of a year, and then we reopened. And since then, we've gone back to normal. Things are great. We're hiring uh, a bunch of new employees and uh, sadly saying goodbye to a few who are graduating from high school and moving on to better things. But business is really good and the escape room is flourishing, I'm happy to say. That's, that's good news. I've often wondered, how do you go about creating puzzles for escape rooms? Is it something that's just come naturally to you because you used to creating stuff for RPGs and computer games and stuff like that, but it seems a completely different medium. And maybe you're sometimes engaging with folk that aren't used to solving puzzles and games. So is there a kind of an accessibility thing about that for normal people, if you will, who are coming into a, a game solving world? Absolutely. You don't want to target hardcore gamers because they are not necessarily going to constitute the bulk of your audience. If they do show up, they probably know to show up in small groups because they're accustomed to winning escape rooms with only two or three players. Most folks will show up for a birthday party or a corporate team building exercise or a family gathering in larger numbers, six, seven, eight, and all hands are on deck are required because not everybody sees the puzzle the same way. 
as for how I create it, typically either a, I think of a dungeon crawl, you're absolutely right. RPGs are an essential part of, of my background when it comes to the, the design that I use, or I just think about what would be really funny. For example, in one room, I have care, uh, players find a tracking device that they have to turn on and it beeps and it guides them to a location via hot and cold. So the beeping and the flashing lights tell them which direction to walk in. Meanwhile, another group of players are attempting to decipher a code on the wall. And at the exact same location, there's a phone and another phone about 50 feet away in another room. And two people have to play a game of chess while reading instructions to one another over the phones. As you can imagine, when you've got people shouting out answers to the deciphered code, while other people are attempting to use a loud beeping tracking device and yelling, no, 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 left, left. And another group of people is attempting to play chess by yelling at each other over phones. It is absolute bedlam. It is so much fun to watch. It's chaos, but watching them attempt to make order out of chaos is, is very satisfactory. But picturing that scenario was actually the origin of one of the rooms that I designed. Just thinking, okay, what could I force three groups of people to do simultaneously? that would result in absolute madness and people screaming at each other to be quiet. And that's, that's where I started with that room. What tools do you use to kind of plan this out? Is this all like on post-it notes and bits of string on a cork board, or is this some kind of fancy digital landscape that you use to kind of keep track of all these chronological sequences that are happening and trying to make sure they all tie them up at the same time? The former, definitely. I'm a Luddite. I actually have a very low-tech escape room. It's what you call generation one. Uh, generation two and three and four escape rooms use varying levels of technology up to and including virtual reality headsets or motion sensors and things like that. Wow. I, I favor the old school escape room experience where you have a key, you have a padlock, you pick up a, a cipher wheel and you have to turn it to line up the letter and the number so you can decrypt the message. It's physical, it's tactile and it relies on people actually looking at each other and not screams. So I definitely, when I'm designing them, go old school. I tend to use the conspiracy theorist paranoia board method that you mentioned, the cork board, the thumbtacks, the string, the postcards. And this is also easier to manipulate for me. I'm not very computer savvy, ironically. I've tried so many different things and I guess it's like the never ending pursuit of the perfect tool to write the perfect dungeon. So there's two things that you're pursuing at the same time when you're trying to write a cool adventure or design a, design a cool game or a cool experience. But I, I just keep coming back to bits of paper and a pencil. It just seems to be the most powerful thing to use. Yeah, you can take all your fancy Miro boards. They're just nowhere near as good as a, as a pencil and paper. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'd also forget how to use things. I mean, I've been using the same MacBook with OpenOffice for... I don't know how long, over a decade, I think. And I, I still occasionally Google, how do I italicize? So I'm not really tech savvy, but one thing I do love is toys. So for example, in the 1980s room, I actually have a bunch of toys, literal toys, Masters of the Universe figures, a Godzilla toy. And thinking of ways to creatively use these to solve a puzzle is part of the fun. So I have on occasion, literally just wandered around my own bedroom and just picked up junk that I have, Dungeon Master's Guide, Rubik's Cubes, and thought, how would this be used in an unorthodox manner to create a puzzle? Is there a filter we could add? Is there some sort of unusual flashlight that would produce an effect if you shine it through this or that? Without going into detail, but yeah, that's the origin of a lot of the puzzle design too, is just playing with toys or devices and asking myself, all right, you know, I've got this, I'm holding up a, a giant red skull. No, it's actually called the Crimson Cranium, Disney lawyers, back off. <laughs> 
that's one of the components in the villain's layer where I was just thinking, what, what could I do with that that would be fun to pick up this giant one foot long red skull? What would you do with it? Uh, can you weigh it? Right? Can you get a simple scale and weigh the skull itself? Or maybe it's the shape or the size or the distance. So that's where a lot of the design comes from. Is there like a hit list of, of kind of common things, what you do with items in an escape room? So you mentioned, you know, you have the, the big red skull. One of the things was weigh it. Is, is there a list of other things like, I don't know, use it to hold something down or like put a light in it? Is, is, do you have a hit list of, you know, light, weight, kind of touch, stuff like that, that you can almost do like a pick list from to give you ideas? We do, and I'm reluctant to use it, and it's, it's a constant struggle as a designer to avoid repeating puzzle types that you've seen elsewhere. It's inevitable, of course. There is a saying among certain blogs and what have you that review escape rooms, and it is time to blacklight, because the question is, how long after you walk into the room is it before you find a flashlight that does ultraviolet right. light the black <laughs> right. effect? to reveal the hidden message on the walls or ceiling, right? So what's the time to blacklight in this case? 17 minutes, not bad. Other times they'll say, surprisingly enough, there was no ultraviolet flashlight in this room. Fascinating. You know, they got, they got through without using that crutch. So I have attempted in my rooms to, number one, make each one slightly different um, by featuring t puzzle types that aren't in any of the other rooms, but also that aren't in any of the other escape rooms that I played. Mm. Cool. Um, one of the things we always have uh, for role-playing games, we and Baz always talk about no game has too much pace, but that's that's got to be an interesting one for escape rooms, right? Because you book out for half an hour, an hour, whatever your slot is, and you're going to have mixed ability people. There might be two of them or eight or whatever else. Some of them won't get clues and maybe struggle for ages. So how do you manage to pace something so that you get like a reliable sort of like chunk of enjoyment out of it, if you know what I mean? Is that, is that even possible? So the methodology I employ, and it's different for every escape room designer, is a war of attrition. I have an enormous amount of puzzles and many people walk out saying that was a lot of locks because it is, it's an enormous number of puzzles that have to be solved. Many of which are deceptively simple or not even deceptively simple. It's literally thermochromic pigment, which is the kind of paint that changes color when you warm it up. So if you put your hand on it for a few seconds and then move, it reveals a message that was invisible previously, right? This doesn't take a lot of time to solve, especially if the clue says, Put your hand on the handprint and you think, oh, okay, well, let's see what happens, right? And then you do, and then you remove your hand and you see a, a number, a letter, a circle, whatever. But there are other puzzles, and this is going to baffle you. It baffles me, where it is necessary to count items. Imagine you're playing a game and there are flowers painted on the wall. Some are red, some are blue, some are green. A total of 20 flowers, count them and make a note of how many there are of each color. And then you have a lock with four colors on it. And you're thinking, okay, so there's going to be six red, three green, seven blue, whatever. This can't take long. Five different adults will give you five different integers for each color. It is fascinating. But in the heat of the moment, under pressure, it's almost impossible to get it right the first time. And someone will say, no, you missed that one over there. And they'll say, oh, God, let's start over. And backstage, of course, we're thinking, yes, start over. Because they've been going so quickly, we need them to get stuck on one puzzle that just requires a little bit of focus and a little bit of quiet. But, of course, when you're amped up and energized, it's impossible to do that. Uh, so that's one technique. And, and therefore, if three experienced players come in, they're still going to have to get through every single puzzle in the room. Or if there's eight or 10 inexperienced players, even with their superior numbers, and they split up into little groups, there's still so much to do that it's going to be close. So we've gotten it down to a, a science whereby I would say the majority of my players escape in 45 to 55 minutes. But 
occasionally people run out of time because they don't want hints. We'll say, would you like a hint? And just a trade secret. We never ask if you're doing well. <laughs> like if, you're, if you're killing it, we never interrupt your winning streak to ask if you'd like a hint, right? We just sort of watch and mentally high five you. But if you're struggling and we're like, would you like a hint? And they say, no, we're good. And we think, well, not really. I don't know that yet. You haven't gotten into the second secret chamber yet. You'll see. Um, but sometimes we'll ask and people will say no, and then they run out of time. And then if it's possible, given the schedule of the day, we'll give them a few extra minutes, of course, to finish up the game. Other times we get a large group of experienced players and they blaze through it in 35 or 40 minutes, which is always anxiety inducing because I, I want people to have a good time, but I want them to walk out feeling like they got their money's worth. If it's a 20 minute game, that would be horrible. Yeah. Luckily, nothing like that ever happens. Is it, is it like one of the, um, one of the GM tricks that, or techniques that I have, and I, I, I know Baz and Gaz uh, share, share similar thoughts is because we've had many discussions about pacing is, if you're running a session, especially a one shot, or or you're trying to keep it to like a you know a nice tight four or six six session game, you might have way more content than you actually need, or you might not have quite enough. And you but you keep things in your back pocket to kind of you know oh oh god it's coming up to ten thirty uh, the session's supposed to finish at about eleven uh, I don't really want to start a big thing all right I'll just I'll toss this little thing in just to kind of keep the pace up and and finish on a mini cliffhanger. Do you have things that you introduce into a escape room live as it were to to kind of i don't know red herring or just add an extra challenge if they're blazing through it that would be fantastic and that is one area where the more high-tech escape rooms have the advantage because i imagine it would be much easier to do that if you could operate certain items backstage change codes update clues display different things on a screen right because everything in the room is physical objects and I'm not able to enter the room once the players have done so, then it's impossible for me to make any changes backstage. So you're not actually in, you're not actually in the room? No, we watch from um, monitors backstage, which is pretty typical. There are only, oh, I don't know, out of the 70-something escape rooms that I play, there were only four or five in which a person was in the room with us. But for the most part, people will watch you through cameras. And then when you face the camera and say, may I have a hint, they will then speak to you through a, a loudspeaker, but they don't actually go my, into My wife's room. done one with, um, with someone in it. And that person in it actually ended up, play, was an actor playing a part and was part of the, uh, part of the solution, which was quite, quite fun. That's fantastic. I love those. Yeah. I've done, I did one called The Blair Witch Project based on the, the movie of the same name. And the guy, the actor was giving us a little bit of a nudge here and there when it looked like we needed one, but he didn't break the illusion. Uh, he portrayed the role of a guy looking for his sister who'd gone missing in the woods, looking for the Blair Witch, and he stuck to it all the way through. It didn't break character till the lobby. Really nice. Which one was uh, was your wife playing? Do you remember? I couldn't tell you the name of it. This is over here in the UK. It was some kind of bank job, I think, and he was a security guard, but like an inside man or something. That's cool. Oh, and the premise was that they were trying to rob the bank. Is that it? Something like that. Yeah, I think they're trying to get out of the bank. It got locked down and they were trying to get out of the bank with the loot or something. Yeah, uh, at the time vault. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll ask her and I'll, I'll, ping, I'll ping you in like um, in Discord or something. And uh, yeah, but yeah, she, she, she has a blast doing them. Uh, I must admit, I've never done one. I got hooked. I got hooked a few years back. One night, one of the buddies in the D&D &D group uh, said, hey, what, what do you guys think about doing this escape room thing? This was ages ago. And and once we did it, we were just hooked on the adrenaline and the thrill of victory. And we've, we've played a ton of them. We've actually played all of the ones locally at one point. So we had to go to other cities. We'd have a, a men's getaway and all, we'd all pile into a 
car and drive to, to a couple hours to another town and play all the escape rooms there. It's great. It's one of the best psychological things I've seen, which probably you get or you can relate to from watching, is uh, there's a TV program that Darren Brown, he's like a sort of psychologist person who like can read minds and tell you what your credit card numbers and stuff like that. But he did one show that was full of a room full of stuff. So there's colored circles on the floor, there's a pinball machine, there's things running on the wall, there's flashing lights, there's all kinds of sounds and stuff like that. And he put a bunch of people in there. I think it was like five civilians and their daily tenant randomly. And there's a counter with some points going up. And he said, if this gets to like this many points, then you win $10,000, whatever it is. And by the end of it, like they didn't quite get there. And they said to the guys, do you think you sorted it out? And like, like all the normal people were like, yeah, yeah, I think we've got it. If you'd given us five more minutes, we'd have definitely solved it. And David Tennant was like, I'm not sure we did, you know. But everybody else had convinced themselves they worked out what the pattern was and what they needed to do. And they showed backstage and all they had was um, a fish tank with one goldfish in and a marker down the middle of it. And every time the fish swam across the line, somebody press a button and the number would go up. <laughs> it was great seeing everybody convince themselves and solve this impossible puzzle. But it was, and then the, the key bit was on the way back, as they're walking out above the door, it says, if you walk out now, you get $10,000. But nobody had looked up to read the sign by the exit. Oh, my God. I could have just walked out after two seconds and got the money. Amazing. But I, I guess part of the attraction of escape rooms and stuff is that, and people who go to them, because I've been myself, is... Like you want to get involved with the puzzles, and it's, it's part of it is almost trying to like think laterally and pull yourself back a little bit. But when someone says you need to do this thing, you kind of want to do the thing rather than think about what should I do outside the thing, or yeah. should I weigh the thing, or look at the thing, or look at other things that are here and not that thing you're pointing to, and that kind of thing. It's, it's like it's a bit like um, when you play a video game though, and you like you start a, a new level or a new area. The first thing to do is to turn 180 degrees and go and look behind the stairs you've just come down because there's always something there mm. you know, it's like it is you know come on game designers <laughs> or level designers uh it's too obvious now but um, i'm curious how much of of your experience doing uh, escape rooms translates through into into role-playing at, at, at your tabletop i have always loved puns and phonetic puzzles and logic problems and have put those as obstacles in in my games for the group that I game with. I've been playing D&D and, and other RPGs and video games and escape rooms with this bunch for about 22 years now, give or take. Although, you know, it started up with two of us and three of us and, you know, over the years we've added men to the gang. And then um, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a consequence, I think of that fascination with solving puzzles. I, I'm trying to think of an example. I think once there was, um, they're in Las Vegas or something, and they were looking for the Arc C. And they thought, Arc C. And then somebody wrote it down and started messing with the letters. He said, Caesar, Caesar's Palace. And I thought, well, you've got me. You've got me. Um, and that sort of thing, I think, really paved the way for our interest in escape rooms, just the idea of collaborating on these logic problems together, solving the puzzles together. But I think there's a lot of overlap for me, you know, as a D&D &D yeah. designer, RPG designer, and escape room creator. It's a very good segue. You've got a new Kickstarter out, I feel like I can't help but notice, called Gateways and Griffins, which seems to be uh, escaping this game. We've been putting it in a box along with a role-playing game. So is, is that something that's born from uh, just an amalgamation of all your hobbies? Or have you, have you seen a corner of the market that no one else has covered before? Or do you just like putting things in a box with puzzles? I think it's a combination of all of the above. I was, I was, um, I've experimented with a bunch of escape room in a box type games. Some of them are local, meaning you can only play them if you live in this town, Apex, North Carolina, the peak of good living. Um, and you know, 
the, the, the town's iconography is all about this little mountain and underneath it says apex, like we're in the Himalayas or something, right? Like we have to change our recipes to account for the elevation. Not exactly. We're like the highest point on a railroad line. That's like 400 miles long, whatever. But yeah, it, yeah, Apex, you know, it's a small town. So I've designed all these like puzzle games that are local, but I started thinking about maybe creating something um, that wasn't based in, in, in this little burg where I dwell. And so I started thinking about creating an escape room in a box. And first I thought, well, let's begin with the narrative. What is the story? And I don't know why it just sort of popped into my head that, okay, the premise is in the summer of 1982, a bunch of game designers working on this role-playing game went missing. And decades later, the case has gone cold. You've found the last surviving prototype of their game. And somehow they've embedded clues in the game text itself, in the dice, in the little miniatures. And so you have to solve all of the puzzles, which are found, of course, in the notebook left behind by the private investigator the families had hired. Simple. Um, so we've launched a Kickstarter. We're close to getting funded. It's, it's the only one of its kind, as far as I can tell. There are no other escape room in a box type games. Number one, that feature 100 puzzles, which is more than all of my escape rooms here, all four rooms put together. It doesn't add up to 100 puzzles. It's a lot. So it's a bigger game than normal. Typical escape room in a box is 15, 20 puzzles, takes an hour. This one, it's like a jigsaw puzzle on the kitchen table. You'll come back to it night after night until it's done. And then when you're finished, there's a tabletop role-playing game, an old school game, um, very reminiscent of basic games from the 1970s. So uh, it's two games in one at that. So it's, it's fun, but it's unorthodox. And because of the nature of that game, is that, I mean, it sounds like it might be something that's good for people who haven't done role-playing games before because they can get into the puzzle elements and play in a board game like they would with the rest of the family. And so a, a gateway drug, if you're forgetting the pub, gateways reference into role-playing. Sure, and hopefully that is the case because um, a great number of the players here are people with children because this is what they call a bedroom community. There are a lot of families with younger players coming to the escape room, many of whom are excited about playing my 80s game because they've been watching Stranger Things as a family. Right. And so a lot of the older dads kind of joke about Dungeons and Dragons because the 80s game does feature a lot of D&D references. And they say they'd like to get their kids into it one day. But of course, who has the time? A lot of these games are very complicated. They're hard to learn. And so I thought, well, why not go pick up basic, but of course they don't sell it anymore. Right? Old school D&D isn't necessarily available at your retail outlets. All they sell is the newer editions that are right. a little more complex. So what about making a game that's very simple that you could actually sort of learn incidentally while solving these various puzzles, right? Learn what armor class is and learn what hit dice are while you're trying to solve the puzzle. And by the time it's all over, you've pretty much got the gist of what a role-playing game is. So it's a lot easier to teach younger players how to, how to create characters and go on adventures. That's the idea anyhow. Sounds amazing. Is, um, does it like have a traditional GM role or a storyteller or something like that then? Or is it just everybody's in it together? Oh no, it's very, it's very classic. The, the role-playing game element is old school all the way. There's a, a dungeon master. Of course, we can't use that term. I use the term gatekeeper, which is <laughs> un unironically a terrible idea. <laughs> oh, the gatekeeper's going to tell you what to do. Yeah, that's going to go over real well on Twitter. It, it could end up getting you a segment of uh, the population buying into it. I don't know. It could be a genius marketing plan. <laughs> Friends of Sigourney Weaver, for sure. <laughs> I do often find myself asking, what were you thinking when you made that decision? <laughs> this is one of them. I don't care. Anyhow, so the GK, the gatekeeper, is uh, is a traditional DM, GM role. And then the, um, the players choose from the fairly classic archetypes, 
But of course, I can't just have your typical spells like Lightning Bolt and Magic Missile. I've got a bunch of really weird spells. Nothing R-rated, but just unconventional and, and rather odd. But I think that's the whole point is the tagline for this is reject the new normal, embrace the old strange, because I don't know about you, but I don't like the new normal at all. It's dreadful. So I've basically regressed into uh, cotton candy hued nostalgia and rose colored glasses that only work when you're looking at the past. What, what is it about the new normal that doesn't float your boat as, as much as the old school? Um, I'm old. <laughs> I'm an old person now, so I don't like it. <laughs> I probably would like TikTok dances if I could do them without injuring my lumbar region, but that is not an option. <laughs> also, I can't figure out how to log on. Because there's so, so two basically verification. What we're, saying, and, yeah. what, we're, what we're saying is envy of the youth is what, what it is. Well, I think <laughs> for the most part, were the Tyrannosaur capable of introspection when he first saw those tiny mammals creeping around. I think he probably would have realized, you know, uh, this is their world now. I am a dinosaur. I will soon be fuel for automobiles. It's over. My, my time has passed. And that's fine. It's uh, yeah. I, I, I've got in the habit um, of saying thank you to whenever I talk to Siri or Alexa, uh, just in case, <laughs> just in case they're recording those humans that were polite to them. <laughs> Uh, when they when they do become sentient and take over, right? Roko's basilisk is going to show favor to you, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm going to be one of the chosen ones. <laughs> Good Thank thinking. About that. <laughs> well I'm not going to be put in a pod and, and turned into a human battery. Oh, my little three year old nephew's toast because he he screams at it. If he doesn't play baby shark fast enough, like <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just done. <laughs> I'm not actually all that pessimistic about the, the present or the future, but I definitely feel disconnected from it, right? I'm outside of the loop on so many things now, the slang, the hashtags, the technology, the the apps, and I, I can't be bothered to learn old dog new tricks, not going to work. Um, so I definitely feel disconnected from everything in a way I didn't 20 years ago, that's all, uh, which is, of course, justification, I think, for creating an escape room in a box inspired by the year 1982. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. One of, one of the things I... I l- loved about gateways and griffins when i when i was looking at the kickstarter page was the feeling of you've discovered these notes you're you're uncovering history there's a detective story there i'm a i'm a real sucker for an investigation style game what i'm curious about is out of the hundred puzzles are all of them kind of like meta as in it's you and me playing and we're we're interacting with this old game or how much of them are actually in world while we're role playing and they're, they're, they're experienced through our characters rather than through ourselves? Excellent question. I would say the former. Uh, it's notes left behind by a private investigator who believes that some of these riddles were left behind by the game designers deliberately, but he couldn't crack them. So he wrote down as much as he could for each one, but it's left to the players to take his notes and try to figure out what exactly the game designers were doing with these cryptic clues hidden inside the rule books or etched onto the dice or what have you. Cool. Is there a character called One-Eyed Willie? No, that's a fantastic, do you know the other day I blew one of my employees' minds. My employees are all 15, 16 year old high school kids, right? And one of them said, I saw this crazy movie the other day. You probably saw it when you were a kid. It was called The Goonies. One of the best movies ever made. I, and I told her it's interesting because that movie featured Bob from Stranger Things, Joyce's boyfriend, 
and Thanos. And she said, what? (laughs) And she looked it up on IMDb and she's like, they were so young. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, you know, as were we all. And <laughs> in my footsteps along this path, you yourself shall trudge one day. But anyhow, yeah, One-Eyed Willie, fantastic stuff. I do love, I love, that's actually a fantastic template for the escape room experience when you think about it, right? These elaborate Rube Goldberg mechanisms, traps, treasure, uh, the, the fun sets. It's, it's a, if there isn't a Goonies escape room, there ought to be. That's a, it's a lovely premise. What I, what I love about my memory of the Goonies is every encounter felt thematically consistent and it kind of made sense. But if you look at it intellectually, it doesn't make sense at all. You know, the whole bit with the uh, with the uh, the big organ and the collapsing stones, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you build that? And, and how do you set it? And, and how do you then test it and then and then redo it? Like, like if you. If, if you wanted to be a simulationism style game, you'd have your players going, well, actually, this doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, why would they put an organ here? How would they get an organ up above a thousand foot pit? That makes no sense at all. How do you feel about simulationism versus the rule of cool? Because a, an organ made out of bones, for me, can levitate above the sea. I don't care. It's cool. I, I like it. I like the question. I think my approach is to try to create scenarios where there doesn't necessarily have to be a choice because we are not in an authentic setting. For example, in Bustin' Out of the 80s, you are in a time vortex, so anything is possible. It makes total sense because anything makes sense in what is essentially a, a madhouse setting, right? Where the, the rules of time and space have been broken because the time machine is malfunctioning. And then in The Mystery of the Mad Scientist, which is kind of this... LSD, psychedelic, MK Ultra, mad scientist lab of riot of color where all the, the walls are the wrong shape and it's very fun house in its approach. Anything fits as long as it's vaguely scientific and it's meaning there's a beaker, you know, there's like a beaker or maybe a periodic table painted on the wall. That's enough science. It fits. So I guess what I'm saying is the cop-out approach that I take is to create worlds where simulationism isn't necessarily valued just because it is already a, a skewed, distorted version of reality in these escape rooms, so anything works, mm. right? Um, is as a player though, simulation. <laughs> if I'm a player and I'm in a game and it's a Star Trek style science fiction game with touch screens and lasers, and I find a key and a padlock, I'm a little annoyed. That doesn't fit. If I'm instead playing a Victorian murder mystery, and I place candles on the mantle and the fireplace swings open, that's nice because that does fit, right? It's, it's very, Agatha Christie is very spooky, but it doesn't suggest technology necessarily, right? Mm. We intellectually know that, the, that it's there, but it, it could just as easily have been lifted from uh, a Sherlock Holmes tale. So it, it's okay, it works. But if there's an actual dial pad, no, that's obviously out of place. Right? It doesn't belong in the room. So- And when, and when you're running, um puzzles in your in your D game um one of the interesting um discussions <coughs> i always hold on, sorry dog's gone nuts um, one of the interesting discussion points that i've always had when it comes to puzzles is where does the player end and the character begin because if i've got a wizard that's got 18 intelligence i don't know if i i'm, I'm kind of smart but i wouldn't say i've got 18 intelligence so so my character is smarter than i am 
I'm definitely not working this puzzle out. Um, what can I do? What, what, what would your advice be? Or how would you play that out of the table? Because the opposite is also true, by the way, where, where the, we're all pretty smart guys, but if we're playing Krongar the Barbarian, you know, I, I've always quite enjoyed accidentally finding the answer to the, uh, to the puzzle. But I'm, I'm interested in how you, yeah, how you go beyond your own intelligence. I usually let the players decide whether they want to role play it or roll for it. That's it. It's their call. If they say, yeah, I, I think I know what it is, but I don't know if my guy would get it. So I, let's just roll. And if he, if I get lucky and I roll the intelligence score or less, then maybe he just leans against the pillar and accidentally pushes. It. Oh, that's yeah, what right. Yeah. Love um, it. You know what I mean? So it, I leave it up to the players to decide because a lot of times they'll be like, oh, I, I want to solve this. I want to decode the message. We can figure out how we figured it out later, right? Um, it could be one of the orcs didn't set the, the cipher wheel properly. And so he left it to the default setting, which means we were able to decipher it right away, you know, um, right. Right. And hand wave that part, but you know, I want to solve it. And other times they're just like, yeah, I, I have a hangover. I really, I just want to fight something. So, uh, can you just tell us what the answer is? <laughs> tell us what the answer is. <laughs> I love the, uh, there's, there's a nugget in there that that's worth lifting out, uh, and, and polishing a little bit more. I, I love the idea that the, the solution to the puzzle doesn't necessarily need to be the deliberate, elegant, actual solution. The in-game solution to the puzzle could be very movie-like, very cinematic, like just accidentally leaning against the fireplace and then just rotating in and, and doing that kind of stuff. That's that's very cool. Um, nice, nice twist on that. Rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, I try and use things as well, like interpreting dice rolls in a certain way as well. So maybe not. I'll have to think a bit more about the puzzle side of situations, but one of the things that annoys me in games a lot is when people fail and then work it, they've done about their own incompetence, especially, especially in games where you're supposed to be heroes or whatever, something like that. It's like, why don't you think of what external factor happened that meant you didn't succeed at this time? Or, you know, if you're trying to chop the orc's head off and you miss, it's not that you're a rubbish fighter because you've killed a hundred orcs already. It's that maybe the orc slipped on a, a bloodstain on the floor or whatever and like just happened to duck and eat your blade accidentally or something. So it's... Mm. Um, I think there's definitely something there for role players to look at dice results and then interpret them and, and, and make some story out of whatever the dice says. Like you don't have to be yeah. I'm, I'm good or I'm bad. It, it can be about external events that are outside of your character or you know, come up with cool stuff. Yeah. That's we're not just rolling dice for the noise to make. Like let's use them to make the story more interesting. The bit that annoys me when people do that though is is when you fail, it's like especially if you roll a you know a one in a in a in a D twenty game, and it's like why are you making my character look like an absolute idiot? You know, I just missed, right? I, you know, why, why am I suddenly now flinging my sword off into the into the lake or or doing this other rubbish? It's as you say, you're supposed to be heroes. You're supposed to be well important, cool characters. I don't. I I I really kind of reject the uh, like the comedy. You're you're an idiot kind of interpretation of a of a failed dice roll. Yeah, and I think some of that's just uh, like baggage from when we were kids. And that seemed hilarious when you were 13 that someone would throw the sword into the... <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, what I am liking about that, certainly a lot of stuff you do anyway, Raphael, but looking at this Gateways and Griffins, it does seem, it seems old school, but not in that rubbish way that we're talking about there with rolling your one and everybody laughing at you. Like, just like the the, the look of the dice and the, the product and having a box set. I mean, that's... I don't know whether you, how far you've gone down with, like, specking out... Um, uh, production and that sort of thing but i know a lot of people these days say they can't do box sets because it's too expensive so in terms of the artifacts because you've mentioned like dice and miniatures are actually part of the puzzles 
Like, how difficult is that in today's market, I guess, is, is the question. Like, putting something like that together, which is a, you know, it's, it's a lot more difficult than just producing a book, for example. Oh, yeah. I've actually talked to a lot of publishers, or I shouldn't say publishers, uh, printers and manufacturers about what it would take to get the components. And I may wind up sourcing different things from different publishers just because of, uh, I keep saying publishers, different printers and manufacturers just because everybody's got a different specialty. I've talked to a few locally. I've talked to a few elsewhere. I, I think one of the Kickstarters I did a few years back, I wound up using a printing company in somewhere up north like Boston. Other times I've, I've used local help and for some manufacturers of, of dice and specialty dice, especially because I want some of the dice to actually be clues that have letters instead of numbers. And so you have to sort of navigate the die, roll it a certain way or move it into a certain position to see which letter is revealed when you do this. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm probably going to wind up working with a bunch of different people, different vendors to get all the components at a reasonable cost. I don't know that this is necessarily going to be profitable so much as I'm pretty sure it's going to break even after shipping costs and everything else are factored. And then because I will in, invariably wind up ordering more product than I need for the Kickstarter, right? They're not going to let me order 317 boxes, right? They'll <laughs> say, well, let's just do 500. Mm -hmm. So I'll wind up with a bunch of surplus that I can put in my lobby where I have a built-in audience that I will sell right. the overstock to mm -hmm. because I have customers, hundreds of them every week. And I've already sold out of a lot of my escape room in a box games that I've had manufactured through Lulu or whatever. So I, I think, I think I'll be able to thread that needle and find, but I'm not, I'm not doing it now simply because I don't even know if we're going to hit these stretch goals. I haven't even really started outlining the specifications for a single manufacturer and saying, okay, could you give me all of these things, uh, 500 units of this? Um, so it may well be that when it's over, I will bitterly regret that because I'll realize it's going to be a lot more expensive than I thought. <laughs> and then I'll say, what were you thinking? <laughs> Chandler, what <laughs> going through your mind? So we'll see. Yeah. The first rule of Kickstarter is it's always more expensive than you think it's going to be. Yeah. I, I've been fortunate. I mean, most, all of them have been, I mean, it's certainly nothing to write home about all of my Kickstarters have been modestly successful and that they've gotten funded and hit one or two stretch goals. So I'm happy with all the Kickstarters that have done up until now, but yeah, uh, there's always an element of sticker shock, even if you've already figured out exactly what it's going to cost, because invariably there are damaged copies and you have to resend them or somebody never got it. So you put another package in the mail and those things add up, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident it'll, it'll work out. The numbers, the number, uh, I'm basically leaving all of the numbers to my wife, who is a veteran project manager. I'm going to brag about her for a second because she's the real star yeah. of the show. She was the senior producer on a video game called Fortnite, which is effectively a license to print money <laughs> for this company that she worked for. Uh, she managed 200-something people, incredible team of really, really top-notch video game developers. And recently, uh, we went to Washington, D.C. because they had unveiled a statue of my wife at the Smithsonian Institute, which is not something every man can say. Um, That's kind of cool. Yeah. Crazy, right? So she's very accomplished. So she says, yeah, we got this. Um, then I just say, great, because I'm not the numbers guy. I'm not the business side of things. Yeah, I'm off to make my puzzles. <laughs> I just do the puzzles, right? Whole Brain Escape is literally a picture of a brain split into two halves, one green, one blue. And that's because... Uh, she and I each have half a brain. Put us together, one whole brain. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I've got so, a uh, I've got a question from um, one of uh, one of the guys in my team. Uh, I mentioned to him a guy called Richard August. Uh, I mentioned to him that I was going to be chatting to you, and he's uh, 
huge fan of uh, of your writing and, and game design. He's also a backer on Gateways and Griffins, and he would love to hear about your take on creating monsters. It's what you do as well as anyone else that he's ever seen. Do you have a process? Well, first, uh, thank you for the support and for the kind words. Uh, to answer your question, I would say it depends on the milieu for uh, a lot of the monster creation that I've done over the years. It stems from a tabletop role-playing game called Dread, the first book of Pandemonium, and then a sequel called Spite, the second book of Pandemonium, and the various spin-off games and ports to other systems over the years. And when I was creating those, I always started with human folly uh, or wickedness. Like a lot of these demons were drawn to alcoholics or abusers or people who harmed themselves. And it wasn't as though the demons were sent to punish the wicked. The demons were just animals that instead of being attracted to a certain type of movement, oh, that looks like a wounded seal, thinks the shark, I will go bite it. It, instead of that, it's a demon that's attracted to a specific type of human action, adultery, right? It's not that it's sent by God to punish. There's no such order in the games that I design. It's really just sort of this sort of hideous biome and uh, the cycle of life. The ecology is is just one in which demons feed on humans and are just attracted to certain things that people do, like doing drugs. So... The protagonists, of course, don't necessarily know that they're rescuing innocent people. That might be an assassin who's being chased by a demon, or it might be an innocent kid. It's, that's not the point, though. The demon itself is just a reflection of ugliness in humans, right? Weakness in humans. And I think that's, that's where most of my monster design starts. Then I attach, you know, like a lamprey mouth or some tentacles to it, because that's cool. And that's that. Hit points, you know, armor class, done. Next. And that, I guess, is how I, I, I've designed most of the monsters that I've ever created. Some of them are more cosmic, right? One of the, I, I had a monster I designed one time that was curious about another dimension that didn't actually exist. But in another universe, there was a sentient life form that used to be a race of creatures that created a massive supercomputer using every particle uh, of matter in their entire galaxy and they turned it into a device that could imagine anything and so it imagined another universe where there's no pain or fear so this creature finds out wants to get to the machine so it can go to that universe and finally experience bliss it's a really weird motivation it's not necessarily you know dragon hordes treasure but that's where that came from just thinking about what would be really cool oh a supercomputer you know i can do anything that seems to be um just, you know, this is the first time I've met you and, and it's, it's fascinating to hear or see some kind of similar themes coming through. It, it's, you know, you talked earlier about with you, your escape room, you seem to grab something, probably a mundane thing or just an object, a thing or something. And then and then you 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 nibble at it and you mull it over and you and you twist and turn it and you look at it from different angles. And that seems to be true for your escape room components, your escape room themes. You know, the theme for Gateways and Griffiths and the puzzles you've put in there. And also now you're, you're talking about your puzzle design. Is that is that a fair kind of observation, do you think? Yeah. that No, that does sound, that sounds right. It's, what did my wife call it? Monomania? I don't know if that was intended as a compliment. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> she did suggest that there is a certain element of um, autistic reluctance to let go of a topic and just just let it go for a minute. Please. Um, I think we're her exact words. So there you go. 
Uh, but yeah, yeah, I do tend to dwell on a thing and, and just sort of explore it and think about how everything comes back to it. In the 80s room, without giving anything away, there's like a couple of puzzles that are my attempt to recreate these iconic moments from 80s movies, but using devices, things you can hold in your hand to see the world in a different way, things that you ordinarily couldn't see. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes back to nostalgia. It's just nostalgia, trying to go back there, trying to re return to the 80s. So yeah, I think you're right. Well, I mean, let's be honest, it was the greatest decade. Um, and I have a working theory that uh, humanity peaked around the late 80s and um, we've on a, been, a, been on a downslope ever since. Yeah, I mean, I, I describe it in my marketing materials as the high watermark of Western civilization and I stand by that. I, I agree, this is why I like you and uh, I think we can be friends. Rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to start singing songs or something now. It feels very strange. We, no, we're just going to start reminiscing over like... I, so I do this with like, um, you know, with the youngsters. So, you know, uh, obviously at Steamforge, we have all different age groups and and um, and types of people um, represented. And and I posit this theory that the 80s was the greatest decade known to man. And, I, I, and occasionally I'll, I'll allow a little slip into early 90s. And uh, they kind of laugh and scoff and they're like, no, you know, the graphics was rubbish in, in movies and, and video games look terrible. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's just do the top 50 movies of all time. And and when you go through it and you're going, and this movie, and this movie, and this movie, and they're like, yeah, they're all bangers. Absolutely every movie that came out in the 80s and the early 90s was an absolute banger. And I don't know, it just, it tickles me pink to kind of see them take a really firm position and then just by the process of going through a, a top top list of movies, they all come round to, God, I wish I was alive in, in, in that decade to really enjoy it while, while it was happening. It was a fantastic time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite excited to uh, to give Gateways and Griffins a go and uh, and try and relive some of that some of that nostalgia vibe. That's awesome. Yeah, if this game was any more 80s, it would ride its bike to the mall and pick up the new Rat album on cassette. I mean, it's definitely <laughs> old school. Amazing. So assuming a wild success for this, would, would there be follow-ups, do you think? Could you write, I'm just trying to think, like, you're obviously a machine at writing. Could you write another game with another 100 puzzles in? Would that be relatively easy for you? Or is that... You know, I already have the list of the 100 puzzles that I'm going to do, but I honestly don't know what I could do after that. I'm really struggling to think about what, what I could do next with the limitations of a low-tech box full of puzzles that are physical objects without the benefit of a website, which I don't really want to mess with, mm -hmm. but might have to. I, I don't know what else I can do without repeating myself. Right. That's always a danger, right? And, and and people say, oh, another phonetic puzzle. No, we, we had one of those in the last game. And then, right. then yeah, you, you, you get repetitive. That's no good. So I don't know. I don't know if I actually have it in me to design another escape room in a box after this. I do have other projects, of course, that I'm thinking about. Um, it's just a question of time. At my back, I always hear times winged chariot drawing near that sort of thing. <laughs> of course. So, are there any of those things that you can share with us now? What thoughts on where you might go next? Or is that all too uh, far off in the future to, to worth discussing? I really want to do more. Uh, interestingly enough, I want to do more corporate bookings mm -hmm. because um, there's so much fun to be had with total strangers uh, to me, anyhow. Uh, recently, I did one. They said, We want to do the Roaring 20s. We're going to have a big get together at a restaurant. We're going to be taking over the entire room is going to be, oh, I don't know, 200 people, something like that. And we want to do a Roaring Twenties theme. All the girls will dress like flappers. The guys wear suspenders and fedoras. So I created this um, escape room that it was in a box sort of thing. It was in a bag. It was in a, a burlap bag with a dollar sign on it, like 
The gangsters had just robbed the bank, right. and inside there was a whiskey flask and some Babe Ruth playing cards and a copy of The Great Gatsby, but it was a fake. I had created a fake using public domain text and altering it to include clues in the book itself. Nice. Fake money with the likeness of Al Capone. It was so much fun to create this fun little game in a bag. But of course, it's like tears in the rain, right? Nobody else is ever going to play it. Just that group of people. Like no right. one else will ever see it. I, I doubt I'll ever, you know, make it commercially available or anything. It was just one and done. But those are so much fun. Um, then there was a woman who asked me to design a game like that for her kid. They'd canceled his homecoming game and event because of COVID. But he still wanted to get his friends together, you know, and, and, and play some kind of game. So I created a slasher movie themed homecoming escape room in a box that they played in their backyard. You know, they hid the clues all over the yard and the night the kids are all walking around looking for Freddy Krueger. <laughs> that for me, that's, that's delightful. Yeah. Um, so I'm always, I'm always working on something like that. And I've got a 4th of July thing. All right. I'll tell you this. This is an amazing little thing. The town I live in apex is tiny little town. Every year at the 4th of July, we have a parade. All the kids line up at one end of town. They're on their bikes. They've got red, white, and blue tassels. Um, they're drinking tea correctly. Lots of sugar and ice. They're, uh, you know, they're pulling each other in wagons and they're all wearing Uncle Sam red, white, and blue hats. And then the music starts and the kids start marching and all the adults line up on both sides of the street and wave and cheer for all the kids as they walk by. And then the fire truck at the other end of town turns on and sprays up in the air. And so all the kids play in the water and then everybody goes out for ice cream. So this is our first year doing it in two years, right? Two years we didn't do it. So this is, this is the first time doing it since we, we had to shut it all down for COVID. And I'm designing a game for the entire town to play that's a scavenger hunt that takes place on our little main street where you're walking down out the historic district. And you look at all the old artifacts, the plaque, the mural, the old caboose, and you use these things to solve puzzles. That's my happiness. I mean, I love Dungeons and Dragons. I love the escape room. But creating those little family games, unironically wholesome and lovely fun. Yeah. That's great. I mean, there must be a little bit of um, pressure on you there. Though. If you're providing a game for the entire town, you probably hope that works out, right? I mean, I'm sure it will, but I'm not trying to put a seed of doubt in your head. <laughs> not like I'm tumbling down. <laughs> They're like, this game's terrible. Um, no, I've done like six or seven of them already. Uh, during COVID, the Department of Parks and Recreation asked me to create some games for the kids to play because uh, there was nothing for them to do. Right. Restaurants shut down, malls, schools, everything. So they would go to the park and play these little games that I had created and same thing. They'd walk around the park and look for landmarks and use these to solve the puzzles. And then I did a bunch of fundraisers for the, the area's uh, public school foundation. So people would walk down the street and all the participating stores would have items in their window displays. So for example, the, the custom gallery of framing, I had created a, a mock-up of um, or parody of Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night where I'd embedded letters and numbers in the painting Da Vinci Code style. And they put it in a beautiful gold frame and put it in the window and the, the kids would walk past and use the, the clues to solve the puzzle with the painting as a, their hint. You know, so so like I've it. done it before. It usually goes really well. It's a lot of fun. That sounds really cool. Who knew the dread guy would be a pillar of the community? Know. That's funny, is it? It's funny. It's, <laughs> it's always the ones you least expect, right? <laughs> yeah, wholesome family fun. I know. Sometimes I'm just like, what happened to you, man? I mean, if you want to write another RPG about alcoholic assassins getting chased by demons, I'm still here for it. Don't feel like you have to tell me. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I haven't gamed in too long. We did play a little bit of uh, old school D&D, me and the gang, a few uh, a couple of months ago. But yeah, I need more. Excellent stuff. So uh, is there anything else that you've been playing or looking at recently? Other people's games, maybe, or computer stuff, or anything like that that you, you think perhaps uh, listeners might be interested in? Anything that's inspiring you or got you interested? Or are you just too busy doing all these other stuff you've got on? 
Oh, no, no. I love um, playing old school games on Steam. There's one called, uh, I'm not sure I can pronounce it, Rot. It's H-R-O-T. And it looks a lot like Quake from the 1990s. It's set in some kind of Soviet-era dystopia. Um, it's very grim, but the gameplay is tight. It flows really well, and it's very tongue-in-cheek. There's a lot of, of grim humor embedded in the, the game. It, it's just this uh, indie game on Steam. I, I, I don't play mainstream stuff anymore. I used to, but it, it's gotten so safe. It's not weird. It's not aggressive. It's it's just the, the sharp edges have all been sanded down, right? So Rot, if that's how you pronounce it, is fantastic. And then Strafe. Wow. Old school shooter like Doom, like Quake. The name Strafe tells you what you need to know, right? right? Run and gun. It's brutal. It's pixelated, right? The graphics are very 90s era deliberately. Uh, they even created a fake ad campaign for it where the mom comes into the room and sees her son playing Strafe and starts screaming and crying <laughs> because she knows how dangerous these games are. And shortly thereafter, the kid's head explodes. It was awesome. So strafe is another classic. So yeah, I do I do a lot of gaming when I can, and you know, escape room in a box games. I just played the Walking Dead escape room in a box. It was really fun. There were some really neat plastic toys. I do like the toy element of the escape room experience, right? Because right. it's rare for adults to really play with toys. They collect them, They're, you know, the wall of Funko Pops, right, or or whatever. But playing is different. Mm, and so yeah. Walking Dead one was fun. There were a lot of little plastic toys in there that you would mess with and solve puzzles with. So that was fun too. Yeah, we were talking to um, Meg and Vincent Baker uh, of Dogs in the Vineyard fame and all that kind of stuff oh, a while yeah. back. And uh, Meg was saying like, like adults should play more. Like when you're a kid, you have to play all the time and people will maybe play with their kids a bit, but like this is just how animals communicate with each other, playing games and having fun. If you look at, I don't know, a bunch of chimpanzees or whatever, like they just all muck about and throw things at each other and just goof around and, and play. You know, it's just, it's a way humans should socially interact. But for some reason... Society's got us like, I don't know whether the Victorians messed it up or something, but like, <laughs> you're always told to grow up, aren't you, and stop playing. But that's like one of the, it's how we learn and share and communicate with each other. More playing. Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. There's a fake quote, and I don't care that it's fake. It was attributed to Socrates, and it said, you can learn more about someone in an hour of play than you can in a lifetime of conversation or something preposterous like that. And of course, no one ever actually said it. Just something somebody came up with so they could post it on Instagram or whatever. But Regardless of, of whether Socrates said it or didn't, it's still true. It's so much fun. And, and also, I can tell you, having seen thousands of games here at my escape room, I can tell you this is the crucible of the soul. All that shit bubbles to the surface, man. Resentment of your parents, sibling rivalries, a crumbling. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's, it's not like that. But it is, it is fun and rewarding to see people play together and to have fun together and to realize they're better at this than they thought they were. And they're better because they were working as a team and they walk out high-fiving each other. Mm. There's nothing like it. This is a really, it's a fun gig because I get to see people there's, play. There's, there's a reason why these uh, leadership, you know, management training courses you go on are, are all about building bridges made out of straws to transport eggs across from one desk to another and stuff like that. I, I remember one of the... Um, no, it's a little bit much to say. It's one of the greatest afternoons of my life. It absolutely wasn't. <laughs> but it was a really cool afternoon uh, when I worked at Lego. Oh, wow. Back in the day, I was working on the the very first Lego Star Wars video game. I was a uh, one of the producers on that. Get out. Yeah, yeah, kind of cool. Um, and working for Lego is kind of cool, if albeit a little bit odd. Uh, they, they have a very esoteric charm to them. But we had a power cut one time. 
one it was sort of one mid morning about half 10 11 o'clock and we we're kind of sitting there twiddling our thumbs and uh we thought hey do you know what let's just go and get a model and uh and build it so we went down and we stole a, a star destroyer from uh from the front desk uh where they had this big display and it was the box and it had all the gubbins still inside it and we took it all up and i think it's like I can't remember now. I think it's like a 300 hour project, but there was like 25 of us. So we just project managed the heck out of that. And you do this bit and you do that bit. And it was just a lot of fun at the end of it, you know, four or five hours later. And we put this all this thing together. It was probably the greatest team bonding exercise that we possibly could have done. And yet all we were doing was playing with Legos. That is fan freaking tastic, man. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed that. It stuck in my mind. That was 15 years ago. So, yeah, shows how powerful an experience it was. So I think you're right. Play, playing is important and and hanging out with people, I think, is important as well. And escape rooms seem to hit both those nails right on the head, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, well. Yeah, so it's rewarding to watch. It is. Talking about hanging out, it's been awesome to have you back on the show again, Raphael. Thank you very much for coming on and chatting to us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to see you again. And Matt, awesome to meet you. Likewise. Yeah, really nice to meet you. I'm looking forward to uh, hanging out and chatting more. Absolutely, man. And thanks to all our patrons out there and anyone who supports the listening land. If you share, tweet, Instagram, whatever, get the word out. Let people know about things. I will put a link to the Kickstarter and Raphael's other awesome work in the show notes. You can grab it there. And uh, I will see you next time on What Would the Smart Party Do? Mm-hmm.